Hi, friends, and welcome to episode number 113 of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am solo today, but really excited to share with you a conversation that I was able to have with leader of the New Brunswick Liberal Party and official opposition of the province of New Brunswick, Susan Holt, about the question of political transphobia in the province and the impact that is having on the educational conditions for children in the province, uh, particularly in the context of participation in the realm of sport. Now, this is, a, a, I think, an unusual episode for us in the sense that it is a bit in a way of a very specific, deepish dive into a place that many of our typical listeners probably don't know all that much about. Uh, New Brunswick is a province in Atlantic Canada, the northeast of North America. It's a small province with fewer than 800,000 residents. The capital city of the province is Fredericton, and that's where I now live and work at the University of New Brunswick. In Canada, historically, the two main political parties that have vied for um, governance are across the country, both federal and provincial politics. The Conservative Company, uh, excuse me, the Conservative Party now rebranded the Progressive Conservatives, which is um, just a bit of subterfuge for you. They are the very much the right wing party in Canada, uh, and then the Liberal Party of Canada which is a somewhat an equivalent, I would say, to the Democrat Party in the United States. Um, they lean center, but probably have le- more leftish tendencies than the, the Democrats do in the United States. What's different about Canada is that we have other parties that have mean- like meaningful um, attempts to vie for power uh, and do, in fact, hold some seats in our legislatures, uh, including the New Democrat Party, which is further left on the spectrum. Uh, and in New Brunswick, the Green Party, which is probably the sort of furthest left alternative that is currently occupying seats in the New Brunswick legislature. At present, the governing party in New Brunswick is Blaine Higgs's Conservative Party, and Susan Holt's Liberals are thus the kind of main opposition to uh, Higgs's Conservative Party. And the reason why we chose to have this episode today is because um, somewhat in somewhat unlikely fashion, the Blaine Higgs conservatives have gone really hard right in New Brunswick, very clearly taking a playbook, taking a page out of the playbook of um, the sort of MAGA right-wing movement, uh, Republican movement in the United States with respect both to questions of policy and also with how those policies are being promoted through means like social media, where there's kind of an attempt to foment a lot of hate and rage online. Uh, in order to support some really dehumanizing policies. And one of those policies pertains to a piece of legislation that was actually introduced earlier in the rule of the Higgs government, a very, I would say, kind of milk toast piece of legislation. It is called Policy 713, and it's a piece of educational legislation basically guaranteeing the fundamental rights of children to exactly the sorts of things you would expect they would have rights to, including freedom of gender, identity, and expression. But of course, we know that we are in a moment of political transphobia across the world, especially in North America uh, and in the United States. And now it seems 
Canada as well, because New Brunswick is on the front lines of sort of incorporating that political transphobia in its politics. And the attack on Policy 713 currently underway, a revision by the Higgs government, is a manifestation of political transphobia. So what we have seen in Policy 713 is a move to remove, to take away some of the protections that had previously existed for queer and trans children in the province. Uh, one of those protections pertains to the question of um, names and and the consent of children to to have um, their correct name spoken, even if that name is a different name from the name on their birth certificate. And what the government is attempting to do is to require some form of parental consent in order for children to have their correct name spoken in classrooms by teachers, by social workers, and so forth. Um, and that has been a point of obvious contention, given that it's not always safe for children to get parental consent and not always safe for children even to seek parental consent. But the government has been um, very determined to make that part of policy. The other key piece that I, we're really going to highlight today of this policy is that there's a protection for children's participation in the sports that align with their gender identity and expression. That has been removed from Policy 713. And that move, I think, is very consistent with the way that political transphobia has been conducted by using sport as a kind of Trojan horse to get the issue on the table because the sports piece seems kind of most reasonable to so many people. Uh, I want to just quickly shout out uh, Courtney Perk, who provided um, some really helpful consultation on the questions for in this interview for Susan Holt. Um, Courtney is a PhD student at the University of New Brunswick, St. John. So thanks so much for that, Courtney. Uh, and I would also just like to say, as always, please uh, share this episode and all episodes of the show. Please check out our very large archive, which has all kinds of evergreen episodes I'm sure you would be interested in. If you have any interest whatsoever in the question of harm, justice, exploitation, and sport, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and other venues. Uh, and ultimately, most of all, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I was able to have with Susan Holt liberal leader of the province of New Brunswick. Susan Holt is member of the Legislative Assembly for Bathurst East, Nepisiguit, St. Isidore, and leader of the Liberal Party and official opposition in New Brunswick. Susan, it is an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nathan. I'm happy to be here. Okay, great. Well, um, as I discussed in the preamble before Susan joined, the province of New Brunswick finds itself in the very unusual position of being on the front lines of really a continent-wide and even, honestly, global right-wing war on the very existence of queer and trans people. In order to situate the discussion we're about to have, particularly about the question of sport in New Brunswick, um, I would love it if you could just maybe explain to us from your perspective what Policy 713 is and why it's so important to protect it from the changes proposed by Blaine Higgs' governing Conservative Party. Sure, I can do my best. Policy 713 is a policy that sets uh, the minimum requirements for schools to create a safe, welcoming, inclusive and affirming school environment for all students, families, 
and allies who identify as or perceived as 2SLGBTQIA+. So it is a policy that was 10 years in the development process across three governments. Uh, It lays out what's expected in the school environment um, for teachers and students to understand. It talks about alliances and spaces and identification. Uh, So it's really a policy to ensure that members of the 2SLGBTQIA plus community uh, are safe and welcomed and affirmed in school. Okay. Yeah, great. Thank you. And we're going to get into some of the changes, especially the changes to that policy around sport. But yeah, that was the second part that, of your question, oh, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> well, no, 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 we're not. That's okay. We're not there yet. We're, get, we're going to get there. But before we do that, I think it's important to situate um, the way that these debates in New Brunswick fit in the larger context of what has been happening south of the border in the United States. You know, in fact, we might say that former President Donald Trump said the quiet part aloud when he told a crowd recently in North Carolina, and I'm quoting now, it's amazing how strongly people feel about that. I talk about cutting taxes, people go like that, and he politely claps. I talk about transgender, everybody goes crazy. Five years ago, you didn't know what the hell that was. End quote. Now, those comments come amid a nationwide in the United States legislative movement to criminalize the very existence of trans children, including state level legislation prohibiting gender affirming care for children in 19 states that criminally sanctions parents for supporting their children's identities in material ways. Likewise, during the debate on Policy 713, very recently now, uh, Premier Higgs in New Brunswick has stated in the legislature itself that gender dysphoria a term, and I shout out to Courtney Perk here for this reference, is defined in the DSM-5 as, quote, a marked difference between the individual's expressed, experienced gender and the gender others would assign to the individual. Again, Higgs stated in the legislature that gender dysphoria has become, quote, popular and trendy. And he later elaborated that, quote, we have a situation that's growing because there's such acceptance that this is fine. End quote. And then he ultimately claimed that, quote, this trend was contributing to an erosion of the family role in child's upbringing. So this is a long preamble, of course, but what I'm asking here is, would you agree with the characterization that Higgs is essentially jumping on this sort of make American great again bandwagon of what I would call political transphobia as a strategy to demonize and scapegoat trans folk? And does it not strike you that this strategy at least teeters on the edge of what might reasonably be called fascism? Oh, well, I think Premier Higgs has certainly gone farther than teetering on the edge. Um, The conservatives here have demonstrated anti-2SLGBTQIA plus rhetoric. You've given some examples. And they've made changes to this policy that put trans kids at risk, and they put teachers and staff in a really troubling position because of its lack of clarity. I mean, from a fascism perspective, if you want to define that as an authoritarian or centralized or or dictatorial um, political ideology. I think uh, some of the recent comments by the minister that resigned uh, in terms of Higgs's leadership style would uh, uh, would connect with that. But he has definitely sown transphobia here in New Brunswick. Yes. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I agree. And, and I understand it's a difficult position for you um, to, 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 to use language around something like fascism. But for me, I think it is really important for us to kind of call what we see as this is happening, especially amid a larger, really a global movement. I think that the right is taking towards fascism. And one of the 
aside from the authoritarianism, which you which you highlighted, um, one of the central fig- features of fascism we should be alert to is the way in which it scapegoats people. Right? It 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 mm. is hi- it hi- tends to highlight genuine problems in society. And and so this is one of the reasons why it's compelling to people is that something like, you know, the fact that capitalism causes a great deal of privation leads to a lot of people feeling desperate circumstances. And I think we're seeing that, um, you know, again, across the globe today, certainly in North America and New Brunswick. But instead of locating that problem with something like, let's say, the Irving Corporations in New Brunswick, right, as the source of where that privation is coming from, instead, the blame is placed upon some of the most vulnerable people in society, people who have nothing whatsoever to do with the problems that are facing society and many people in it, right, but then take the blame because, in fact, the people in charge who are using this rhetoric are not interested in ameliorating the problems, right? They're actually interested in protecting interests like Irving, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that Higgs has actually worked for the Irvings in the past and really seems to be serving their interests. Um, Okay, so it's recently become clear that the Higgs regime is essentially trying to promote its anti-trans policies to a national and even international audience, as reporting recently has revealed that they have hired a new right-wing media relations firm, a change that has coincided with a more deliberate social media strategy that has boosted his Twitter account and even led to a post with well over a million views, which is, by the way, a radical change from an account that would get, when I moved to New Brunswick in July, there was no engagement on Higgs's account whatsoever on Twitter. Um, so that's a really striking change. And it's particularly notable to me, given that the next election is now scheduled to occur, if it's not called earlier, and I know there's been a lot of chatter about that, but it's scheduled to occur just two weeks before the U.S. presidential election in 2024, a fact certain to cast a long shadow over the New Brunswick campaign. Are you concerned about this more aggressive courting of non-New Brunswick support for the Higgs regime? And what kind of influence do you think that might have on provincial politics and the effort to protect queer and trans people here? This is something I'm deeply concerned about, actually. I think Higgs's decision to spend taxpayers' money, public dollars, on a rage-farming strategy that that strives to create fear and divide New Brunswickers with misinformation, uh, I think it's disgusting. I think he's inviting in hate to our province. Um, our province of neighborly, caring people. Uh, I think that this this strategy is absolutely well. It's going to hurt queer and trans people. Honestly, it already has. Um, so I think that 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 inviting in of some of the ugliest and most hateful uh, sort of energy and comments from different parts of North America and around the world into our province uh, in the face of political interests. Uh, it's really, it's a new low for New Brunswick politics, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been really, cons- I mean, like you, I've been really concerned to see it because it's a very noticeable change with how they were sort of pursuing this project. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's, go on, it's, go the, it's the opposite of what leadership should be to me, right? He's he's moving forward with a them strategy. You know, he's othering a whole bunch of New Brunswickers to divide us uh, when I think leadership should be about bringing people together and working through challenging situations like this with 
clarity and empathy and finding common ground and the fact that he's trying to really niche down into a base and um, artificially create support. You look at those million views that you talked about and how many of them were from New Brunswick, right? Like, like you said, right. he's inviting in uh, folks from all over the world into our little province in ways that don't strengthen us. We want to be inviting in the world to New Brunswick to come and move here and live here and contribute to our project of a, you know, diverse, bilingual, um, vibrant society. And instead, uh, he's inviting in division uh, that's going to hurt New Brunswickers. Yeah, exactly. And as, as Trump himself pointed out, and I think, you know, Trump is right on the money with this comment. It's very clear online, if one, if one spends much time in online spaces, that the the single issue that kind of rage farms the most, as you said, that, it, that produces the most engagement is this anti-trans hate, right? As soon as that anti-trans button is pushed, you get a huge number of people from, as you say, all over the world jumping on and scapegoating trans people. It's horrifying to watch. It's profoundly harmful. And it's also a strategy that the right has has taken note of, right? And, and so it's, it's very clear that... Both what we're seeing with policy 713, what we're seeing with the social media change, you know, these things are connected and they're not coincidences. They're deliberate strategies mm. to punish trans people in order to try to, I think, deflect attention from the very real problems in this province. I mean, you might want to speak to this, but mm. like this is a province suffering profoundly in terms of healthcare at this point. We know we have a huge, a very significant um, surplus, right? And yet we have people unable to receive medical care. Right. Because mm -hmm. there simply are not enough practitioners right now. Uh, you know, that's just one of many issues that we're facing. Yeah, you're absolutely right that we're spending a lot of energy on something that should never have been an issue in the first place. When we have a healthcare system that isn't accessible to many New Brunswickers, we have a housing crisis that is top of mind for a lot of people who are are vulnerably or um, not stably housed. And we have a cost of living issue that is affecting people day to day as they make tough decisions about groceries and medications. And, uh, and instead of working on those problems, we spent a lot of energy, uh, a lot of energy on something that should have been left alone and that the premier has dug into for purely political interests. That's right. Exactly. There's at the end of the day, I think it's crystal clear that the governing regime has no answers to these very profound material problems that are facing people in New Brunswick. And as a consequence of that, they're using this 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 scapegoating strategy, right, to deflect attention and to produce the so-called culture war. And I, and, I, and I sometimes get a little wary with the about the language of culture war because it is sometimes used to dismiss the topic. Um, but we, we have to be really clear that um, although the so-called problem that has been created is not a problem, the consequences of problematizing it are, are really profound for trans and queer people, mm -hmm. right? Because it becomes like very real violence that they face in their lives. Um, and so that's, that's really why we have to pay attention to it, even though it's, it's a more form of deflection and distraction. Mm -hmm. But let me, let me zoom in. So, so this is really supposed to be a conversation about sports. That's the purview of this con this podcast. So let's focus in on that because I think that actually one of the reasons I want to is it's not, it hasn't really been the focus of the discourse in New Brunswick when it comes to the changes to policy 713. To me, it's been a little bit, it's sort of like a piece that's been buried. And yet I think we need to talk about it because this is really 
if we're talking about the strategy that has been used by the right, by the MAGA movement, the strategy is always to start with the question of sport. It's the discursive entry point for political transphobia because from a common sense standpoint, and I am not supporting this position, but from a common sense standpoint, a lot of people have these ideas that there are fundamental differences between men and women when it comes to athletic attributes. And that means that if we're talking about so-called fairness in sport, right, there needs to be gender or sex segregation in sport between men and women. And therefore, that this raises all sorts of question marks when it comes to trans people for those deeply invested in those ideas about gender essentialism and sport and so-called fairness and so forth. Now, I'm not trying to reiterate any of that, but I'm saying that there is a reason why the right uses this as the entry point, because in a way, it is the most compelling argument for re- for average people who haven't been thinking a lot about these issues. And so in the United States, some 22 states have passed legislation barring trans women from participating in women's sport. And University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas really became a national spectacle as platforms like Fox News touted her putatively, quote unquote, unfair advantage. What this has looked like specifically in New Brunswick is a change in the language of policy 713, okay, very specifically. So I'm going to sort of just read out this change in language so people can pick up on what we're talking about here, because sometimes these things are subtle when they come to the actual language, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a question of law and what that means in terms of protections, right? So originally, policy 713 stated, all students will be able to participate in curricular, co-curricular, and extracurricular activities that are safe, welcoming, and consistent with their gender identity, end quote. Now, the changes to, to, to the language, the language that now remains, according to the revision that the Higgs government has just initiated, all students will be able to participate in curricular, co-curricular, and extracurricular activities that are safe and welcoming. So we have the excision here, right, of consistent with their gender identity. That's the key piece. It's been removed. From your perspective, why is it important for children to be able to participate in sports that align with their gender identity? Oh, well, I mean, you could start that by saying, why is it important for children to participate in sports? That's probably established with the listeners of your podcast, because there are so many benefits to sports participation, right? Like, we see that with kids and their confidence and their mental health and their physical well-being and their social engagement. So then when you look at trans youth, these are youth that are facing high rates of discrimination, violence, family rejection, suicidality. Um, So these are kids who could really benefit from the benefits that sports presents um, to kids. And to exclude them from that opportunity, um, especially at a young age, right? If we're we're looking at kids that are elementary school, middle school, high school, um, to exclude them from that, I think, further, further stigmatizes them, further impacts their well-being, their mental health, their ability to um, to to connect and and build relationships in a school community. So, uh, I think the the policy language was there intentionally to begin with. By removing it, it has cr- created confusion because now there's less clarity than there was before, uh, and it suggests that. Uh, the opportunity to participate in sport that aligns with your gender identity may not be um, protected or a given in schools, even though the New Brunswick uh, Interscholastic, what is it, uh, Interscholastic Athletic Association, which is right. the organization that 
sort of overseas sport at the high school level. It doesn't extend into to middle school or elementary school, but at the high school level has been thankfully very clear on what their policies are for participation. And their policy explicitly states that students can participate fully and safely in sport aligned with their gender identity. Um, but for the policy to now become silent on that, well, just further reinforces our questions about what this conservative government is trying to do with the edits that they've made to the policy. They've weakened the policy in this regard and made the environment less um, safe, comfortable and inclusive for trans kids. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I mean, <clears throat> I would say a couple things there. One, I, I agree with you. And I think it's really important to underline that that NBIA a policy that you pointed out, that their clarification of their own policy in high school sport in the province was one of the finest iterations I have seen in the entire continent of North America of an athletic organization getting out in front of this and making uh, making a really conscious attempt um, to protect the rights of trans kids, right, who are participating in sport. So I think that they deserve a, a huge amount of kudos for that because that was the, the single best thing that they could have done to sort of intervene in this moment. But with that said, I think that what has gotten glossed over too much in New Brunswick, including, unfortunately, by our advocate, Kelly Lamrock, uh, is the fact that that protection does not apply to any kids prior to the high school age level, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of kids playing sports in New Brunswick where that will have no impact whatsoever on their participation and so forth. And, and so uh, that's why the language in Policy 713 is not just like helpful, useful, good to have. No, it's necessary, right? It is the legal requirement we need to guarantee, right, that's, that kids have their rights to participation in the sport that aligns with their gender identity protected, mm -hmm. right? And without that, you're just relying on the good faith and goodwill of actors. And how can we rely on that in the context of a climate, right, where the conservative government is consciously trying to foment hate against trans people? Right. So we need legal protections in exactly that kind of environment. And that's what the whole point of Policy 713 is. Mm -hmm. um, just So just to, just to tease out something else that you were getting at here, because I think it's really important in these debates. This is really not just a New Brunswick issue, but I think that this gets at the heart of why the question of trans participation in sport matters. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on the purpose of interscholastic sports. Are interscholastic sports about competition or are they about social benefits? Why should we have sport in schools in the first place? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think we have sport in schools as uh, exactly what you said, as a way to to strengthen the school community, um, to deliver benefit to the students, both socially and from a health and wellness perspective and a well-being. You create connectivity. You build confidence. Not every kid is going to be brilliant academically. Um, some kids can build academic confidence by demonstrating athletic prowess and having a place where they can be recognized for those skills that sets them up to do better in the classroom. Um, and for kids who are having trouble maybe making friends in a cafeteria, but can make friends uh, on a sports team, you're giving them another avenue to to connect and build their sense of self um, and their sense of self-worth. Uh, and so, and so I think there's, there's so many social benefits to sport. It isn't about, I think the competition or winning the banner or the title so much as it is giving kids opportunities to develop relationships, connections, confidence, and esteem and, and the beautiful sort of physical and wellness benefits that can come with sport as well. 
Yes, exactly. And I mean, and and then if we're talking specifically about the issue of trans children, we have the question of affirmation, right? What we're, what we're ultimately talking about is what could matter more for a, a trans child than to participate in the sport that aligns with their identity. That's the fundamental affirmation that that is who they are. To tell them that they cannot participate in the sports context that aligns with their gender identity is to tell them that they are not who they know themselves to be, right? Mm. And that, I mean, if you do that, what you're doing in a school setting is you're causing an identity crisis and profound lifelong trauma and harm, right? And based on what you've just outlined for us, the entire point of sport in schools is to build social benefits. It's to create well-being, health, and happiness in our children. And if what you are doing, because you are imposing an identity upon them and imposing which sporting context they have to play in, right, based on the sex segregation, right, you are potentially causing like a, a, a really a profound amount of, of harm for those children that, that is diametrically opposed to the very project of sports and schools. And if that's what sport and schools are going to do, we'd be better off not having sport and schools at all, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, I, I really appreciate you said that. And I think that we, we need to focus on that because people become obsessed with the question of quote unquote fairness in sport. And they fetishize sport as something so important when in fact, this is about the development of children and their well-being, that should always be our top priority. And if you lose sight of that because you're fetishizing competition and sport, you really shouldn't be around children and you shouldn't be involved with nurturing and developing children. So that, that's me on my soapbox, but I think that's a really important thing to underline. Now, it has also been pointed out by many that although we should be profoundly concerned about transphobia for its own sake, obviously, and the harm it inflicts on trans, non-binary, and queer children and adults, it's also true that transphobia, including transphobia in sport, harms all children. This was perfectly illustrated recently during an event in Kelowna, British Columbia, during which a cisgender nine-year-old girl was misgendered by the family member of another participant during a school track and field event. According to the mother of that girl, this man said of her daughter, and I quote now, this is a girl's event. Why are boys throwing? The girl's mother added, then I quote again, then the gentleman started insisting that I provide documentation in the form of a certificate proving that my daughter was born a girl, end quote. As a consequence of this traumatic experience of misgendering, the mother said of her daughter that, quote, she was physically vibrating. She was sobbing. She was in and out of tears all day till bedtime that day, end quote. I bring up this example because this is precisely the sort of thing we are likely to see more of given the enforcement of strict so-called sex-based gender segregation in youth sport amid a transphobic political climate. Can you talk to us a bit about how you can use your political position to help protect trans and non-binary people when, and I don't say if, when this happens in New Brunswick because it's an absolute inevitability in a climate like this? Mm. Oh, well, I think um, I think politicians have tools to address this. And some of them we tried to enact in the legislature last week. Right. We can signal to New Brunswickers what is acceptable and what isn't. And so protections to policy 713 is one way to do that. Um, we certainly can legislate. Uh, what hate crimes look like and what the consequences of those things would be. Um, and we can communicate what uh, what New Brunswickers feel and want uh, so that we can 
we can create a space where anybody who observes that kind of behavior knows that their government will back them up when they call it out and when there are consequences for that kind of um, that kind of action uh, so that it, it doesn't go further right I, I think that those are the tools that we have as politicians right there's there's legislative tools obviously and then there's communication tools so I was extremely pleased to see that a majority of elected representatives in the New Brunswick legislature indicated that they do not support the premier and the minister with their anti-trans rhetoric and approach to policy 713. I think signaling that a majority of people who represent a majority of New Brunswickers uh, do not agree with this is one way to tell folks that if you're going to come to a kid's sporting event and say and do things like that, it will not be accepted. And there will be consequences um, for the kind of trauma that that person inflicted on that child. Yeah, no, uh, that, that's great. And, and I um, I appreciate that as opposed to sort of skating past this, that... Um, that you and, and your party and really like folks involved in uh, New Brunswick politics are taking this seriously. Cause I think this is a moment where uh, like there's, there, there, there's two sides to it, right? There's kind of, as you get, as you said really nicely, there's a kind of, in a way, a material side and there's a um, uh, kind of representational or rhetorical side to it. And the material side is like literally protecting mm-hmm. tra- trans kids, right. And giving them the rights that they need to have. And that has to do with legislation. Like legislation has a role in doing that. And so really pushing for and fighting for and not backing down when it comes to these legislative moments is is vital. And then there's the rhetorical side, which is showing that people stand with trans, non-binary, queer folk in the province, right? And that y- you do have the kind of platform, obviously, as a politician to to put that front and center and say that we're not going to just sort of allow the conservatives and this as part of this right-wing movement to to grab that rhetorical ground, which is what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. right? And set the terms of this debate and make cl- outlandish claims because this is really what they do. They make claims about people being groomers of children. Mm-hmm. I mean, like really disgusting and defamatory things. If anyone, again, if it's involved in online spaces, this is part and parcel with how the right tries to frame their attack on, on those who defend trans people and trans people themselves, right? They use the language of child abuse and grooming and all this sort of thing. And it's, I mean, it's deeply disturbing. And I imagine that for those who are not paying close attention, it almost seems like it must be true, right? Because who would possibly make such disgusting claims about people Mm -hmm. unless there was some foundation for them? And yet there isn't, right? It's completely fabricated out of whole cloth. And so that's why it is so vital to provide discursive opposition and not allow them to seize that terrain. Because otherwise, I think we really get to a dangerous place potentially. Like I view this as a as a potentially genocidal project that the right in North America is right now conducting against trans people. And so we have to resist it every step of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's the biggest concern about the strategy that the conservative government has now taken is that they are drowning out the voices of New Brunswickers with uh, the voices of a far-right, international, kind of hate-based group. Um, so when I look at, you know, the the feedback that I was hearing from parents and students and teachers prior um, to that disgusting tweet of the premiers, I was hearing from New Brunswick parents and teachers and students on both sides of the issue, um, 
and had a chance to sort of filter through that and get a sense for what people's experiences were, uh, where they had had issues with schools or teachers or situations, uh, and get a sense for for what most people were feeling and thinking in New Brunswick. Then when the premier invites in uh, global hate and our inboxes get swamped with a single view that's not coming from New Brunswick, it becomes a lot harder for the rest of us to be able to tell what's real and what isn't and how do, you know, my neighbors really feel about this because they have drowned out the voices of New Brunswickers with their, you know, with their, their signaling um, and inviting of, of hateful voices to come into New Brunswick and accuse me and my colleagues of ridiculous things, um, not only ridiculous, disgusting things um, and harmful things. So it is, it's a very dangerous place that we're in because as elected representatives, I take listening to the public very seriously. Um, and it's hard work and it's work you have to do every day to listen very carefully to what people are telling you about their experiences, about how they feel, about what the realities are of their life in their corner of this province, um, so that we can create the best possible legislation and climate for everybody um, to, to, uh, to live happily and safely here. And when our ability to do that is constrained by the leader of this province inviting in this noise, this hateful noise, it's, um, it's, it's really, a, a, it hurts our democracy. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Um, so I, I know your time is short and I'm going to maybe just uh, prevail on you for one more question here, which is, um, we talked about this a little bit earlier. We did touch on this earlier, but the part of this project, this anti-trans project from the um, conservative government here is to deflect from the very real issues in the province, right? We're looking at a moment of greedflation. It's been called greedflation now, I think, really effectively, which is to say inflation that is caused by the desire for corporate profits, right, rather than any other reason, Um wherein Higgs's interests seem to rest with protecting this, the kind of corporate hegemony of the Irving family of corporations, even as the cost of living, and as you noted, especially housing, rises to unsustainable rates for, no, for most New Brunswickers. A moment in which Higgs has been actively working to defund and under-equip a public health system in order to make the case for the move to private health care. A moment in which COVID has essentially been swept under the rug, even as it continues to circulate. And amazingly, given all the above, a moment in which the province enjoys an $862 million fiscal surplus. Can you talk a bit about how you would approach these issues differently than Higgs here? How can you use the office of the premier to materially improve the lives of New Brunswickers? And mightn't that, as just a little hint, mightn't that involve a significant increase in corporate taxation? Because that's certainly something that feels to me might be welcome here. Hmm. Well, I think there's lots I can say about how what I would approach this differently from Higgs. And I love the question about how you use the office of the premier to materially improve the lives of New Brunswickers, because that is the responsibility of the office, right? There is, and there are, again, sort of two different ways that the office of the premier can do that. One is through the machinery of government and legislation, and the other is through communication and indicating the kind of province that we're trying to build um, and, and putting forward the policies and the vision for our province that is one of us being an inclusive place. Uh, and so I think my, my approach to leadership and to 
the three specific issues that you mentioned, right, healthcare, housing, cost of living, is you have to start with a desire to listen and to listen to understand. Uh, and, I, and I think you need to bring forward an empathetic leadership that recognizes the challenges that people are experiencing in the healthcare system and then works to address those challenges in a transparent way and in a way that includes the people, the patients, the practitioners, and the experts in the field. We are suffering from a complete lack of transparency and accountability in our healthcare system right now because all of the decisions are being made in the office of one man in Fredericton who is certainly not a healthcare expert. Uh, and we hear from nurses and other professionals that they are not included in the conversations or decisions about the kind of health policy that we're rolling out. So my team and I have, have been consistently promoting an empathetic and transparent and exclusive, inclusive leadership model that decentralizes power out of the premier's office and into communities so that we could build community-based healthcare solutions with a diverse team of professionals that recognize the local health needs and put forward the kinds of chronic disease management and primary care structures and solutions that make healthcare accessible to everyone. Uh, that we do not see the government taking their $862 million surplus to roll out those kinds of community based healthcare. Um, models that New Brunswickers need and deserve. Uh, same thing on housing. I mean, we could talk structurally about what's needed in housing. There's so many different steps the government could be taking uh, to address this fundamental right to housing um, that New Brunswickers have. But again, this this is a it calls for a collaborative and community-based approach because the housing challenges in St. John are different from the housing challenges of St. Isidore. And so we can't have a unilateral one-size-fits-no-one policy coming out of a premier's office. We need to have community-led and empowered housing solutions where the office of the premier and the provincial government facilitates the achievement of our objectives with a flexible policy model and an empowerment of those community organizations to deliver for New Brunswickers. So again, that's listening, it's relationship building, it's empathy and transparency. Uh, and that's, I think that's that's the model that my team and I would bring forward to New Brunswickers. That's what they're telling us they want. People want to be involved in their healthcare system and in their housing solutions. We have brilliant New Brunswickers with great ideas to contribute to these challenges. And we need a government that's not afraid to welcome them in and share power and authority and responsibility with them uh, so that we can move forward together. Uh, so I think it takes a vulnerability and a courage uh, from political leadership to let go of their sort of clutch on power and to share it at the community level with the people um, who want to be part of the solution. Absolutely. Well, Susan Holt, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little little carried away there with that answer and probably took up more time than you intended. But I, I appreciate the chance to talk about this, Nathan, and um, to shine a light on on the really scary approach that this government has just decided to take. Um, but I think that we as New Brunswickers have tools to oppose it, and that is with um, with a love and respect and a demonstration of inclusivity for each other um, that will show Mr. Higgs and his team that this approach is not welcome here because it's not who we are as New Brunswickers. Mm -hmm.